Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon alongside St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global and Barden Co-Recruitment in partnership with District 4. This podcast will explore how we can transform our communities in the 21st century. Today, the Community Safety Podcast turns its attention to the reduction of violence in our streets. My guest is a former Chief Inspector with Police Scotland and he's working tirelessly to change attitudes and change the way that we approach how we can reduce violence across the whole of the UK and the rest of the world. Please take a listen to a snippet of today's interview. You know, we need to move into this conversation where we start to, how do we influence people in our communities to come along with us? You know, this isn't just about saying, you know, we're going to do this. You need to come with us. You know, the more and more I've thought about prevention, it's about how we, how are we persuading people to come with us? You know, for men, you know, how are we going to persuade men to to take on this role as leaders? How are we going to persuade communities to um, follow us and, and work with us and, and take some proactive action? And for me, we need to look at the science of persuasion. It's now time. This is the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon. Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Nixon. I've been working in community safety for over 25 years. This podcast will explore how we can transform communities and save lives in the 21st century. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest as Graham Golden. Graham is a former Chief Inspector with Police Scotland and he spent the last part of his 30 year service working on the Violence Reduction Unit. He's now a consultant trainer and he's interested in developing personal and organisational brand and how individual and societal attitudes and behaviour often impact negatively on reputation, performance, absenteeism, recruitment and retention. He has experience delivering bystander training in a whole host of establishments including schools, universities and workplaces. He is the Director of Cultivating Minds UK and he states it's all about relationships. Graham, thank you for agreeing to be a guest on the Community Safety Podcast today. It's um, It's been long awaited this one. I can't wait to interview you today. So uh, big thank you to you. It's great to be here, Jim. And yeah, I think you do such wonderful work in creating the positive conversations that, that I know work when it comes to prevention. Yeah, I know you're doing some fantastic work and uh, I really want to get into the, the nuts and bolts of it today if we can. So we're uh, really looking forward to this one. As you probably know from listening to some of my podcasts, Graham, we'll start off with you as in your early life and a little bit about you. I know bits. I've done my research, but I'd love to know more about the young Graham leading up to, you know, your sort of early adult life. So over to you. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm 54 years old now, but the young Graham, just a young boy, young man, loving life, out with his mates, getting involved in things that he probably shouldn't get involved in all this thing. But there was something inside me that wanted to join the police. You know, my mum used to say to me as a boy, Graham, you always wanted to join the police. And I've, to be honest, I've no really any idea where that came from. I just know that, you know, 17, 18, I started to really think about it, started to think about joining the, the police in, in, in Scotland. And then, you know, left school, um, went to college. I wasn't one of these educational, you know, highly educated people at school. I did well. I passed my exams, but not, not flying colours, probably in the middle, middle of the road. 
um, joined, you know, left school, went to college for a year, did a sort of criminal justice course at um, college in Edinburgh, and then applied for the police um, as a 19-year-old boy. And I'll say that I was a, I was a very young, naive 19-year-old, got into the police in Lothian Borders Police in, in, in Scotland. And um, that was the start of my journey as a 19-year-old as a boy. And, and now, um, you know, and sorry, in policing, you know, joined policing 19, God, 1987 in Edinburgh. And um, I suppose that the, the, the person that I am now is completely different to the person I was back in 1987. Back then, I was that gung-ho cop who was excited about going out and arresting the bad guys. You know, my, my job was to fill the prisons up. That's what I thought my job was, was about. Um, I was a plainclothes officer in Edinburgh. I was a detective for six or seven years. Went to Tully Allen, the training school in, in Scotland, to, to, to educate and train the next generation of Graham Goldens in some respect. You know, that go out there and do, do the work. Um, came back from, from training, was promoted, got involved in training, you know, police training, probationer training, and then started to dip my toe in the water of prevention. And that's, I suppose, in 2008, 2000, yeah, 2007 and eight, I started to really have that transformation in my thinking. And I'd always been challenged, I think. I always used to say every so often, am I really making a difference? Am I really making a difference enforcing the law? And you know, don't get me wrong, we need to have laws, we need to have police enforcing laws, but I really started to challenge, am I making a difference? I was dealing with, you know, you know, individuals who were having kids, I was dealing with their kids, and I'm sure now if I was still in that realm, I'd be dealing with the grandkids of, of, of the offenders and not really making that difference. And, you know, 2009, the chance of a lifetime, I got promoted to a chief inspector role within the, the Scottish Violence Reduction Unit. Yeah, and within days of joining that organisation, I was forced to take my hat off, police hat off, and think radically differently. Policing is important, but to prevent, we need to think differently. We need to act differently. As, as a police department, police organisation, we need to be smarter in how we how we you know use our powers out there. And those nine last nine years of my policing career with the Violence Reduction Unit really have made me into the person I am just now. Things that I see differently. Um, you know, the power of community, the the issues around masculinity that we have in in society. That that need for us to really address domestic abuse you know in many ways there'll never be peace in our streets and to have peace in the home and for me these are the these are the the transformations i went through um you know the power of the early years you know we can forget prevention if we don't start to focus more on the early years of of you know of, of of a person's life that first thousand days in life are the most important and that includes the nine months in the mother's womb and again that's why the likes of domestic abuse is such an important focus for police for local authorities, for local and national government, because as I said, we need to really grasp the trauma that's taking place not only in the home but in communities. So, I I retired from policing in twenty seventeen, you know, and um, still with a passion, a fire in my belly to 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 really engage communities, you know, and by a community I'm talking about community in the traditional sense. But then apply that to workplaces, apply that to sports teams, apply that to schools, universities, colleges, prisons. These are all little communities. And prevention starts in in our in our community, as far as I'm concerned. And you know, before I retired, I got really compassionate about the power of the active bystander. You know, that 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 person who often sees situations um, but doesn't act. And you know, in my policing career, 
I'd often interviewed witnesses who'd said things to me like, I knew something was going to happen. I could tell this wasn't going to end well. And back then I used to get really frustrated, but I still used to, I learned more and more about why people don't intervene in situations. And we took that bystander approach into schools. I embedded a program, the Mentors and Violence Prevention Program in our high school system up, 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 up here in Scotland. So when I retired, I just had all this knowledge, this passion, this, this unfinished business in some respects. So I've taken that now into retirement I, and I, I now work in different settings, workplaces, you know, tackling workplace bullying and harassment, using the framework of leadership, but using the bystander element, um, working in schools and universities. And um, I'm, I'm the only UK based trainer who works with the active bystander in law enforcement, which is a, a peer intervention active bystander program that works with police officers, USA and Canada, training them to spot harm and deal with it before it becomes you know within the organization within within policing before it becomes that you know you know before more harm is caused before we have people hurt before we have people dying like in the george floyd case before we have colleagues losing their job how can we intervene as early as possible so yeah i myself confess bystander geek i really believe in that third person but importantly i believe in the power of community to prevent I'm going to go right back to what you said earlier on. There's a couple of things that I picked up on. And um, number one is, were you honestly prepared as a 19-year-old lad, as you described it, or kid, um, for a, a a career at that time in the police service? Were you prepared? I think, you know, I, I had a good upbringing. As a, I had great parents. My mum and dad you know, gave me that resilience. And I often look back, you know, things that I can deal with now, you know, I can go right back to those those teen, those early years and teenage years, you know, that state, safe, stable, supportive, you know, um, caregiver, parents. And that's key in, in life. And, you know, they gave me that. They gave me that resilience. Um, and I, yeah, I think, I think I was prepared. I didn't, I don't think I really knew what I was going into. I think from that perspective, see, I thought that policing, and it still is in some respects, was just about going out there, attending the calls and arresting. And that's prevention. That's harm reduction. That's risk reduction. And we need that. But we need to find a blend of that, you know, enforcement alongside other solutions, prevention. And yeah, so that, you know, I think I was prepared, but did I fully know what I was going into? Possibly not. It's a steep learning curve, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and I think you you learn you know from people around you, and maybe I had some good mentors in policing. There were some bad mentors as well, bad leaders, bad colleagues, um, you know, colleagues who probably um, you know let let the side down in some respects, and we see that a lot in policing still. But I felt even you know back then I I couldn't speak up. I was that I was being disloyal if I challenged that behaviour. Um, and that's a big thing that I've taken into my work. What does loyalty mean? You know, critical loyalty is important to me. The, the ability to say to a friend, a colleague, I'm doing this because I don't want you to lose your job. I'm doing this to, to help you, not to challenge you and to cause you offence or shame. I'm doing it to help you. So, you know, I've learned a lot about that. And, and I used all these experiences in my early years in policing. Now, when I'm working with cops in the US and there's some exciting opportunities with an English police force around this work, which is coming up in the next few months. So I'm going to be using all this experience to, to, to tell the stories. Yeah. It was interesting what you were just saying as well about, you know, that prevention. When I joined in 95, which is a few years after you, 
I was exactly the same as you. We had some really good mentors, not some some not so great ones as well, but in the main, really good mentors. But it was all just about lock up. It was all just about attending on a blue light, yeah. locking up. Um, even back though those days, I'm sure yourself, you know, for the most pathetic things as well. In a lot of cases, it was all about how many arrests have you had per month and how many stop checks have you done. Don't get me wrong. I like stop and search. I think it's got it. I think it's got its its its, its place in society in in policing. Yeah if it's used you know appropriately proportionately but it was just about that and that's what i thought you know i was the same as you i thought i could change the world by just locking people up and it was only really when i started to get a real keen interest in sort of community policing and neighborhood policing that i saw that bigger picture like you did and i started to see well actually you know if i dig a bit deeper into the background of this young person then there's a there's 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 a lot of stuff going on under there that actually is the reason why this young person is now going down the wrong route and it was that kind of light bulb moment when I you know started to get involved in that that I started to you know want to do more and and what what I found was I was kind of pushing I was pushing against that resistance from the old style bobbies that like were just it's all about lock up it's all about just getting these people off the streets yeah and I found that quite hard. I'm not sure whether yeah, you did, but I found that really difficult. Oh, honestly, I, I, I did. You know, I just say I, every so often I would challenge my my way of myself. Am, am I making a difference? But you get sucked into that culture, yeah. and and that and, and that's what the public expect from policing. And you know, even now, and you know, in those last years of policing, and even now, I still get called the soft cop. You know, and this isn't about soft policing. This is about smart policing. You know, every police officer in the UK should be aware of trauma, the impact of trauma and how that if you're stopping and searching a person and if you're searching a person who may have under, you know, gone through trauma in the early years, their responses to you are just in reaction to your actions. You know, if you're heavy handed, if you're if you're shouting aggressive, then their their brain has been trained to respond back to you. And I often say, you know, know, accountability for violence is always with the perpetrator. But you know the number of punches in the face or kicks that I got. Did I did I contribute towards that by the tone of my voice, by my lack of knowledge, and and now I f- I feel cheated that I didn't have the knowledge that I have now, and you know we've known about trauma for for years for decades, and you know we need you know this isn't about for the cops listening. This isn't about going soft. People who break the law who commit violence need to be held accountable. You need to do your job. You need to use your powers of search. But just be aware of the the trauma that is out there. And trauma doesn't excuse a person's behaviour. It more helps us understand where it's coming from and hopefully how we can de-escalate situations by our tone of voice, by the way we approach. Do we have to do that? Do we have to do it that way? And that's something I learned. That's brilliant, that is. I mean, I, I, I've been in a lot of situations, Graham, um, when I was, I was cl- pretty close to getting quite a beating. And I always used to say I was a, I was a, I was a, an officer mm. that trained the students, the probationers, as they were probably called when we were first in the police and became student officers. But I always used to say to them, "Look, guys, you know, you might have your cuffs, you might have your baton, you might have your CS spray, but your mouth, your communication skills are the most important thing." And I say that because though that though those skills that I've learned over the years have got me out of some really really difficult situations, and I always seem to have the ability to be able to get the best out of some of the people that are locked up, you know, and actually gain a little bit of respect from them in the way that I treated them. And yet, and yet what I yeah. used to see was 
the officers that used to feel that it was a badge of honour to actually get all these um, complaints against their name, they were always the ones that were getting assaulted and they were always rolling around with people where actually I can probably count on, you know, one hand, probably two hands, you know, the amount of real seriously violent people that I've had to, you know, be quite forceful with in a proportionate way, but because I've had no choice. But yeah. I've always started at that lower level and then, because I always say to officers, you know, start low. You can always meet them halfway or above. But if you start up there, where are you going? You've got nowhere else to go but rolling yeah. around with them on the floor and then you can get hurt. And a lot of officers just didn't get it. But that's good self-awareness, Jim. That's what you're yeah. talking about here. You know, there's that concept of use of self. Use of self is when, you know, we all bring our good values, our good attitudes, our beliefs, our mistakes to every interaction we have with the public. And I think, you know, when you're aware of your own your own values, your own beliefs, your own experiences, you can bring that to that interaction with that individual. Because the amount of times that when I was a young father, when I was in my mid-20s, the amount of times that I would speak to um, suspects about their kids, yeah. you know, giving them advice. So indirectly back then, I was using that tool of use of self. I've, I've now, I understand, you know, what that tool is now. It, it, can, it can go badly wrong. If you're Mr. or Mrs. Sexist or Racist or Homophobic, then if you bring that part of yourself to your work, then that's going to come out. But most people in this world are good people. Most of us are good people. Even the ones that do the harmful things are good people. It's just often the situation that leads to things. So I think use of self is a tool that we can use as police officers, as teachers, as social workers, really anybody who is interacting with um, individuals out there. I've got a quote, actually, that I've written down here, which I think would resonate with you, is that I've put here that... During my police service, I met. I didn't meet that many bad people, but I met a lot of broken people. Yeah, and I think that is a that is the, the key to what we're trying to talk about here. It is, and <clears throat> I would agree. You know, I I remember arresting a a guy for a, a bank robbery, and I, I remember I remember this vividly. It was early in my, my service, and I'm sitting in one of these police boxes having my wee mid morning snack. And there's a bank robbery about a hundred yards away, and I'm going, oh no, what's going on here? So I went, I went, I ran out of the of the police box, and was confronted by two guys. One guy had a a, a revolver which he pointed, but thankfully it was a. We later found out it was to be a imitation, and I decided to chase the guy with the money, and he, I caught him a few a few yards later. Another guy made off, but when I, you know, the guy that made off, he was, you know, he's, I think he's he's dead now. Um, but he's, you know, he had a horrific history of violence and torture. But even him, when you look at his background, where that came from, and again, we're not excusing, not excusing violence at all. But we need to better understand the people that we are dealing with on a daily basis. And you know, a lot of, and you know, even when we talk about drug deaths or we talk about homelessness, you know, when I'm in Edinburgh and I see people on the streets and these people without homes, and I, I refer to them now, these are often people that I, I, I sort of recognise them. And I, you know, I often, you know, you know, think about if I, you know, have I been part of their problem? Could I have done better in their, you know, their teenage years when I when I dealt with them? Could I have been more supportive? Um, have I contributed to their their issues and why they're living on the streets of Edinburgh? You know, I sometimes think about that and think about you know how we have that saying in policing: every contact leaves a trace. You know, around evidence gathering and whatnot. It's the same. Every interaction we have with the public needs to be positive. Even if we're depriving somebody of their liberty, which is the big debate just now about stop and search, 
you know, that is the, the greatest power we have as a police officer is to deprive a person of their liberty, whether to arrest them or to search them. And we need to respect that. And I think there's, a, there's some of that has gone missing from, from some in policing. And, you know, I'm, I, like you, I believe in stop and search. Stop and search is a contain and manage part of any strategy when it comes to violence prevention. Um, but if that's the only tool, it's that, you know, if the ham is the only tool, then every problem is a nail. And, and that's the issue we've got. And that's why we're seeing the backlash against the likes of stop and search. It moves quite nicely onto one of the observations that I've always had around and something I've, I, I sort of used to bang on quite a lot about in the police, again, met a little bit of resistance, or a lot of resistance actually, early, early intervention. And this came as about of a conversation I had one day when I was doing quite a lot of work with a lot of young people that had got trauma um, issues from you know domestic abuse that they'd, they'd witnessed or whatever had gone on in their lives and they were starting to become those kind of new kids on the block. And I had a couple of conversations with a couple of nursery nurses and um, reception teachers. And I said to them, you know, if if I said to you, right, you've got a, a class now and you could you identify the kids in your class now that will become those problematic kids of the future? They said, without doubt. And that kind of got me thinking that, you know, and you mentioned it earlier around, you know, even sort of, you know, this care and support and, 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 and sort of... Um, being aware even when kids are in the womb, it got me thinking that, you know, we just don't do enough of this. And the reason why we spend so much money and so much time and effort at the sharp end when we've gone, you know, they've gone too far is because we don't put enough time and effort into that early formative years. And I do appreciate the complexities of it, yeah. but I just think, well, the, the other end is, com is complex as well. So why don't we spend more money on that intervention, that yeah. early, early intervention? And I just wondered what your views were on that. Well, let's take it from an economical perspective, you know, in economics. You know, every pound we invest in the first thousand days of life will give us the best return on our money. Fact. You know, that's been, we, we looked at that in the violence reduction unit. You know, there was estimates from every pound, the return would be 18 pounds to 54 pounds. That's the best time to, to get the money on your, the money out of, you know, in, 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 in prevention. So I think it's, it's it's important that we we, we get and it's a, such a shame you mentioned that that we can we can we can forecast who is going to be or predict who may will be the problem. That's a, such a shame hmm. that we seem still you know we 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 we're comfortable in saying that or even saying it in the first place. Um, but I think you know that I remember there's a TED talk that I I watch every every six months and it's a, by our American teacher Rita Pearson and it's called Every Child Needs a Champion, and she she talks about the power of relationships as a teacher her job is is to get the best out of a young person and that involves building investing in the relationship with that with that young person and you know i often say many i've learned many things in policing but it was one the power of community but the power of healthy relationships is key and i think we need to start get get society to start thinking about if you've got nieces and nephews if you have got you know friends who've got kids you know every child is a champion you know we flourish when we have that 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 healthy relationship um and that might be with a teacher a police officer you know that might be with an uncle or an aunt that might be with a, a mum or dad or a carer or foster carer but we all need that sense of coherence in our lives to make sense of our upbringing our sense of our surroundings and you know, and we also know that just because you have that poor traumatic upbringing it doesn't mean that you will be you will go on to become that violent 
criminal or that victim of violence. We know that. We know, and that's so we know that. But we know that without that stable, safe, stable, caring relationship, your chances start to rise as you get older. You know, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, the Kaiser Permanente Study in San Diego in the 90s, highlights that. You know, early years trauma can lead to all these negative outcomes plus early death. Um, but, you know, I often say, you know, that you might be a person with five, six, seven or eight aces in your life, but that you've, you know, I, I look at angels and demons. If you have all these demons on this shoulder, it takes one angel on that shoulder to balance that out. It gives you that resilience. Yeah. Oh, um and I think that's why I, that's why I can deal. Yeah, so it's, it's it's balance. We need to find the counterbalance to the trauma um, that that that's there, and that can just be one person, a teacher. You know, I remember Ian Wright. There was Ian Wright, the footballer, that sports oh, coach. Is that lovely that's film? An amazing, with the amazing coach. moment that isn't it? You know, yeah, it is, isn't it? it, it and that's it, that. That's what life is about. You know, don't underestimate the power of connection. That that we can all bring to this work. You know, violence prevention is on everybody that's listening to this, not just the professionals, on each and every one of us. And we can all be that that champion. Every child needs a champion. I um, I got involved in um, acceptable behaviour contracts as a sergeant with a, norm, a number of kids on my patch. We had a particular issue with, you know, some areas, you know, get neighbour disputes. We seem to get a high proportion of those kind of kids that were unruly, there was evidence of trauma, and they were just, you know, they were all running right, basically. And we put together a, quite an intensive program around acceptable behaviour contracts, but we went a stage further. And it's exactly what you were just saying, Graham. really. It was about me or the other officers getting to look at the good in those kids and actually finding a common a common theme with them and getting the best out of them. I used to sit in a meeting with them and some officers would do it like really formally and they'd be telling the kid off and I would like to say I'd sit there and go, you know what, I, I really like you. I really like you. I, I, I can see some real promise yeah. in you, you know, I've got I've got faith in you and I want to do some more work with you and I'm gonna come around your house with my officers and we're gonna to get to know your mom and your dad if the mom and dad were together and I'm gonna to get to know your brothers and sisters and we're gonna really put some time and effort in you because I believe in you. And you'd see their faces just light up, you know, and one of the things I'm really, really proud of is that we had about fifty or sixty kids on these schemes that we put a lot and Get, don't get me wrong, mate. We had some good resources back then. You know, I'm going back to you know 2010 onwards, yeah. before all the, the really harsh cuts. Yeah. But you know what? We never took one of those kids to enforcement, and we got, and I know for a fact we saved a lot of kids doing that. So it comes back to what you were saying. You know, that angel on the shoulder I know made a big difference to a lot of those kids, and and it can be done. But you've got to have the foresight to see. You've got to. I remember one of the first bits of work I got involved in in the VRU was a, a community mentoring program with the YMCA, plus one, the plus one in mentoring scheme. And what we wanted to do was to look at that return on investment, social return on investment, yeah. um, by you know engaging with young people who are on the cusp of going into the criminal justice system. So you're 11, 12, 13-year-old. And what we wanted to do, there was a wonderful guy, Peter Crory at the YMCA at the time, and um, we had the Association of Scottish um, Social Workers involved as well. And what we did was we, had, we, we worked in, a, in an area, we um, identified young people who were at risk, they were getting referred by police, whoever. And we partnered them with um, community mentors, volunteers, people who volunteered once a week, once a fortnight, 
to take that young person away for a bit of one one to one, a bit of respite from the parents. But that strength, that strength based approach you talk about, and I think from what I remember, we invested like a, a hundred thousand pounds that cost us for the program. It was one point four million pound was the social return on investment, and it, and what's good about that program is it's still going, it's still being used in pockets because you know public health approach to tackling um, likes of violence. If it works, you keep doing it. And that's the challenge. We don't seem to keep doing things that we know work. We just push them away for new innovation. And I think, you know, the plus one is a great example where you're steering young people away. Because once a young person, once any young person is, is involved in the criminal justice system, you can basically write them, you know, they're, they're going somewhere eventually. And prison is probably a likely outcome with early death, drug death, addictions and that's whatnot. Exactly, so we've got to yeah, keep that, people away from criminal that's justice. That's exactly what we were trying to do, you know. The bit, we got the youth offending team involved really early doors, but it was all about prevention. So the whole idea of it was that we kept them out of prison. We kept them out of that criminal justice system and that was my main goal, you know, because I could see that if we just yeah. kept you know, chasing them around the streets and just, oh, well, yeah, it's Billy Bloggs again causing problems, you know, and not really get into him or her, um, then we knew that we were yeah. going to go, we, we knew where they were going to go. So I'd like to think, you know, that the work you've done, the work that I've done actually has prevented some of those kids from going down that system, you know, that horrible criminal justice system, like you say, will lead to either yeah. incarceration for a long period of time during their adult life or, like you say, early death, which can't, you know, that just can't be right. I wanted to touch on your no. views around the power of community because I'm very much on your page in terms of, I'm very much a believer that yeah. we, as one individual, you know, can make a difference. And I think we both have made differences in communities in our own special ways. So I just wanted your wider view on that, really, on how we can take that further forward and how you would see, you know, a model, you know, in a community or in, and I appreciate communities are different across the country, but how would you see that evolving? Mm -hmm. You know, I think you're spot on. You know, prevention of anything starts in a community for policing to come along, for social work to get involved, for, you know, other organisations to become involved. Something's happened. Something's broken. There was a breakdown in, in a relationship or, 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 or you know, or, or something, or someone's broken the law or, 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 or someone's been hurt. Whatever's happened, something, something's happened. And I think, you know, there is there's such a power in, in engaging um you know, sort of neighbourhoods, people around young people or people around domestic abuse victims, people around um, people who are being bullied, harassed in workplaces or at schools, or in, in, in school, because people see things. And there's something inside each and every one of us that's, that wants to do the right thing. But a couple of things that are at play here, you know, I think we, are, we live in a country and I think we live in a world where we're so used to governments doing things for us. So we, we become reliant on the system, you know, or the police will deal with that. Um, though, you know, the, as, we're, as we're seeing just now, the police are being stretched so many, so much more than what, when, when we were in the police chip, right? They're doing this, they're doing that, they're doing absolutely everything. Um, and, you know, they, they say, oh, the police aren't social workers. I would say, yeah, they are in some respects. Yeah, they are mental health officers. They're human beings. <laughs> but we need to help. We need to help, and I think if we're if we're allowing our friends to be victims of violence and abuse, if we're allowing a friend who who you know who may be committing violence and abuse, then we're not being good friends, and we we could be stopping things from happening. So for me, 
you know, there's some good work, I think, going down in England and there's been some work in Scotland recently around asset-based approaches, looking at the, the power of the, the community assets. And everybody listening to this is a potential asset. You know, what can you be doing um, to, to, to support this, this type of work violence? But as I said before, you know, when it comes to violence, we often look at the statistics and we think, oh, you know, in Scotland, 60,000 people were victims of domestic abuse on average each year. Um, but these are people we love and care about. These aren't just these aren't just far off people who don't exist. They are people who we love, care about, work with, and for many, far too many people, violence is deeply personal, either directly or indirectly. Let's not wait for it. If if, it's, if violence hasn't come knocking at your door, don't wait for it because it's there. Start thinking about what you can be doing to look out for your friends, to look out for you know, as, as men listening to this, you know, we we have a responsibility to create a culture. Um, of um, positive, healthy masculinity, where we reduce suicide, where we reduce men's violence against women and girls, where we reduce men's violence against men. You know, there's, there's things we can be doing. So models, and I've done a lot of work in the last six months, <clears throat> um, south coast of England, there's something going on down there around active bystandership. You know, people training, training communities, training nighttime economy workers, training the you know, neighbours um, to you know, spot things, spot situations, and rather than do nothing, do something. So get how do we give people the tools? Efficacy is a is a big motivator for for you know for, for people to intervene to do things. We need to give them the tools to do you know to you know to act, to intervene, to support. So there's a lot we can be doing with communities. And for me, a community is the untapped resource. I I really resonate with that because I, I use the term stigma a lot around, you know, in particular domestic abuse. And um, I, I think, you know, when if we go back to the 70s, you know, there was, a, if I refer back to, say, something as simple as um, the wearing of the seatbelt or drink driving. And I think that yeah. although it still goes on now, people still will break the law around it. I think in general, it's improved immensely over the years. And I actually do think there is a stigma now around, you know, not putting your seatbelt on when you go out to yeah. drive, particularly if you've got children in the car or, or you know, if you don't strap them in properly or you go out and drink drive. And what I want to see more of is that exactly what you've said is that I think there are a lot of peer groups that know that their part, their friends, their good friends are being violent yeah. and involved in that kind of behaviour and they turn a blind eye to it and they, they probably don't think it's right yeah. And they don't believe in it, but because it's their mates, and we see this in police culture, don't we? You know, where officers do wrong and people yeah. turn a blind eye. It's a similar sort of situation. And I think that goes on in communities. And this has got to stop. And I think people have got to grow a pair and be, you know, be open to challenge, <laughs> you know, challenge their friends. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. You know, what, you know, in the 1980s, one of the first a really successful peer intervention campaign in the United States was friends don't let friends drive drunk. And that led to 75% of American citizens taking keys off their friends, right? So we, you know, and, and, and you're right, we have we have peer groups and let, let, let's get it out there. We have in particular in male peer groups where us guys don't like to challenge our friends. We no. don't like to be seen as someone who's spoiling a person's fun. And friends don't let friends you know, um, get arrested. Friends don't let friends carry knives um, because that sense of loyalty we, we, we discussed before, you know, 
friendship is about loyalty and that's just so important but you're not being loyal and a good friend if you allow your friend to um you know harass a woman on a train or if you know your friend's taking a knife to school you know you need to think about what can you be doing and again young i think my experience with men is that we we, we grapple with these situations we're uncomfortable with these situations but we don't know how to talk to our friends about it you know we like in this in this country there's a lot of conversation about calling people out you need to call people you know we need men to call their friends out that will scare there's risk there <laughs> there's big risk you know every action will have a consequence i i use the phrase calling in and calling in is and my, my wife's a social worker and she's she's got a phrase that i love and it's called connect before correct and I've, and I've applied that to my work and the connection is, hey, Jim, uh, you're my friend, but what you did was wrong. And I want to tell you that because I don't want you getting in trouble. So that's yeah. calling in because yeah. calling out is shaming. And that there's risk. You you could become, you know, I was in school a few months ago in Manchester and this young boy, when I asked the question, what's the challenges to you speaking to your friends about their poor behavior? And they said was, you know, being ridiculed, being isolated. So it's a social. It's not a physical. I don't think friends fear their friends being physically violent towards them, but they fear that isolation, and that's a social fear which young people feel in the brain. Sorry, adults even as well. It it lights up the pain receptor in your brain apparently. So we feel it. So fear, physical fear, stranger situation, social fear, friend situation, but the, but the reality is, um, men actually will respect men who challenge poor behaviour, right? But well, unless we create the conversations on this on these topics with within male peer groups, then we are not going to make much progress on on some of this stuff. You know what doesn't work when it comes to say preventing sexual violence or domestic abuse is telling men not to do that, do that, or bad things will happen to you if you do that. Yeah. What does work is getting men talking, and that I think I think communities as well need that. Communities need a conversation, and we need to invest the time to go into communities and talk about domestic abuse or sexual violence or hate crime, but in a way that allows the, the pro-social norms to rise to the surface. Yeah. You know, we have more in common than which divides yeah. us. We have, you know, when, and when you start to see that your neighbors think the same as you or your best mates think the same as you, then you have got allies, you've got allies and finding your friends is key for active bystanders. If you know you have somebody who's gonna support you, you're more likely to, to speak up. And that's what policing needs to do. Policing has a culture where the minority often think they hold the power and the majority of us feel like we are in the minority and that's that false consensus and that can poison an organisation like policing or banking or, or any organisation where you have that because what creeps in is this learned helplessness. You think, well, what's the point? I can't do anything. But there's lots we can be doing but we need to create the culture which supports that. Yeah, I really like that what your wife said. You know, I think that's really important. And when I say grow up here, that's I think great, that, that, that's kind of what I meant. Really, it wasn't about shopping them to the police or anything like that. What I meant was having that honest conversation with them and actually having no. the having the guts to say, you know what, mate, I love you. You're a good mate of mine, but I ain't, I ain't comfortable with what you're doing. You know, and having that honest conversation to try and support them. You know, because yeah. I don't want to condemn a person, but I want to prevent it. For you know, I want to prevent that further damage. You know, and I think that's why I was getting at really. Um, and it's just so important. And I think I saw that, and I think it's that it's it's, it's that idea where we need really you know the re real reductions in violence, for example, will take place when 
friends have the courage to speak to their friends. Yeah. yeah. And it's not about, you know, a lot of a lot of bystander programs that I see in the world are often teaching people to intervene at the time of an incident. And that's like playing whack-a-mole. And we can play whack-a-mole all day. We just whack, whack, but it's very dangerous. And people more often than not do nothing. So we need to, you know, think about creating that culture where within male peer groups, you know, sexism is seen as a transgression against the norm rather than the norm. And intervening in your in, intervening with a friend is, is expected and is done for the right reasons. Why, why do you think boys and men in particular um, find it so hard to talk mm. about these kind of issues and, and kind of challenge? What, why do you think that is, Graham? I think, you know, it's, it's, the, way, it's the way we socialise our, our young men. And, you know, we've got thousands of years of, of, of socialisation to undo and we can't undo that overnight. And if you think about it, you know, you know, you know we, 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 we live in a, in a society where, you know, I, th- I, th- I think young men find it difficult because they often, you know, there's a great bit of research which talk, it's called the destructive influence of imaginary peers. And what it basically says is that young men ro- often wrongly perceive what their friends think. So, for example, around sexism, they might think that their friends, are, they actually support sexist views, whereas in the reality, they don't. So a young person, young man is left thinking, am I the only one who thinks this isn't okay? Because if I speak up, you know, there's, 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 there's great, there's, there's real potential for me to, to lose friends, to be isolated, to be ridiculed. We're programmed not to spoil our, our mate's fun. You know, on a night out, if this guy's leaving the pub with a, a female who's had a lot to drink and he's giving you the thumbs up, you know, we're challenged, we'll, we'll be called names if we if we try and challenge that behaviour. But the next day, you, you learn that your mate's been accused of sexual assault. You could have stopped that. Um, so I think men do find it really difficult and I think it's in the way that we socialise our boys. You know, we, we need to... I, I do an activity with, with youth workers and teachers. It's It's called Boys Need Stuff. And what I mean by stuff is like, you know, in my office, I'm full of gadgets. As guys, we love our gadgets and our technology and our, our things. Um, but stuff, I equate to the, the tools and qualities to be good men. And one of them is the ability to speak to your friends about the poor behavior. right? Have that, have that courageous conversation with your mate. And we can't just expect boys and men to do that. We need to help them do it. And you do that by getting men talking. Talking to, because what does work around violence is, is getting men talking and giving them the sco- the skills to be active bystanders. But and, uh, to me, to be a good friend. And that's what we should be thinking about. Just going to take a break from the podcast to showcase an excellent product from our main sponsor, RHE Global. It's called Reams Community Safety. It covers all your ASB case management needs, plus up-to-date community safety processes and supporting documents. Store all your community safety content in one place. Local edits can also be made so you can customise it for your own organisation. Avoid expensive court costs by ensuring that you have the most up-to-date case law and keynote webinars to support with all the documents. Some of the topics to be covered will be the injunction, closure powers, community trigger, community protection notice, amongst a host of others. To obtain more information, you can contact the team via the website www.reams.org or email sales at rheglobal.com. I hope you're enjoying the Community Safety Podcast. If so, please rate, subscribe and leave a five-star review. 
this really helps to spread our message. You know what? We always say, don't we, the most you know, productive kind of things sometimes that make a real difference in life are quite simple. And what we've just, in, in essence, I, I accept it's complex as well, but in essence, it's quite simple, isn't it? If we can get people talking and get people having those honest conversations, it would reduce an awful lot of violence on our, on our, you know, in our homes and on our streets, wouldn't it? Yeah, and you know, this one thing we developed in Scotland in the VRU, the early early days of the VRU, was this idea of the shared agenda, and I've taken that in the work I do now. The shared agenda is healthy relationships. So let's think about policing. If we get relationships right in society, we have less violence. We have less demand on policing. Um, if we get relationships right in schools, for example, we have less. We have more, we have better attainment because kids feel safe. If we have better relationships in workplaces, people are more productive, people don't leave, they want to join. So, you know, organisations, you know, the, the, the violence, for example, is a wicked problem. And there's, and what I mean by that, there's no exact solution. <clears throat> there's many stakeholders involved, they're often working, doing different things. And for me, different organisations, local government, national government, policing, social work, education, all the key stakeholders, even community, what are we doing to build relationships? Because if we start to really think about that, then we're all coming at this from the same, this you know, the same direction, and you know, he, you know, for example, in, in education, no significant learning will take place without healthy relationship. So I apply that when I'm working with schools. You know, schools often think, why, why do you want to talk about violence in my school? And I'm and so the first thing I'll ask is, what are the challenges that you face in your schools? And you, when you ask that question of teachers. They'll come back, um, social media, oh, it's a pain in the neck. Kids are sharing images of each other. Sexting is rife. And I'm saying, and they'll talk about other issues at home or COVID or mental health issues. And I say, what, what is that impacting on? It's impacting on learning and attainment. Kids go to school to learn. If they don't feel safe in a school, they won't learn. If you, if you go to work in a police office, if you don't feel safe in your work, you won't be productive. You'll go off sick. You'll leave. Um, so if we, you know, I was taught by a wonderful mentor of mine, Suzanne Dirick, you know, any, any challenge, any issue, when she's working with a, a client organization, you know, she'll ask the question, what are you doing to improve relationships? Because that's key, you know, in a sports team, if you get relationships right, the team performs, we look out for each other. You know, if, you know, so there's so much potential for us to just hone in on that one word relationship and that make the difference. I've just um, <clears throat> just started a new team. Um, we we we've put together some offices, and one of the first things that was so key for me was that culture. You know, it was yeah. bonding those individuals together, accepting that there were certain gaps in learning. But what we've done is we've put them all together, and we've kind of supported them. We've been empathetic. We haven't sort of jumped on minor mistakes. You know, all those kind of things. And what it's done, Graham, is it's just forged an absolute solid team. And because now what's yeah. happening is, is the peers are all working with each other and they're ironing out the problems together and they'll only come to us as a management team when they really desperately yeah. need us. But that culture that we've implemented within that within that team, like you just said, it's just one of the best I've seen. But that comes from us as yeah. leaders that we set the, we set yeah. the tone early doors yeah. and it's worked really, really well. And I think people get that wrong, you know, is that they don't see the value in that really good, strong culture. And if you get that right, yeah. 
it's brilliant. But if you get it wrong, boy, does it go wrong. Yeah, I think there's a, an academic in the US, Amy Edmondson, coins the phrase psychological safety. And that's what you're doing. And, you know, in a workplace, you're creating that culture where learning is ex- where learning is okay. Questioning is good. Making a mistake is seen as about learning. And challenge is okay. You know, challenging people. And I think organizations like policing need to get better at creating that psychological safety. Because in policing, if you make a mistake, that can be career-ending. You know, it's a human... Yeah. In nature to make mistakes, we we all make mistakes and we learn from from our mistakes. So I think you're right. It's you know building that team. <coughs> excuse me, building the relationships is key in that team. Um, you know to, to to create that culture. And you're right, culture a culture is set by the worst behaviors that a leader is willing to accept. Uh, and leaders create leaders. You know, the leadership leaders will create new leaders um, on the ground as well. Yeah, I'm really key on that, actually. One of the things that we do on our team is we identify talent and we make sure that we, like, for example, we'll give them, like, number two roles. So when one of the managers is on holiday or away from work, they step in and they step up and we give them that support. And it's not a case of, you know, there you are, you're on your own. They are given a lot of support, but they so much grow because they're given that responsibility where, you know, like yeah. if you use the football analogy, you look at some teams where they bring in all that talent and all that, you know, all that money. Sometimes if you don't get the right personalities in, you can have a lot of talent, but if they don't gel and that team culture isn't there, you then wonder why they're not performing. And that's the reason why is because they're just yeah. a bunch of individuals that really aren't working within a really good team culture. And hence the performance isn't there. And we've seen that a few times, yeah. haven't we really? Yeah, you can apply that to workplaces. You can apply it to communities. And the, the, the All Blacks use the the analogy of the the rugby team. The All Blacks they use the analogy of the the formation that that birds fly in, geese fly in, the V the V formation. It's the most economical way to fly, and they call it the flow, the team flow. So they create. If we can create that flow, and the flow in a community is a common purpose, common purpose to have safe safe communities through free from violence. And I think that's. You know, we need to move into this conversation where we start to, how do we influence people in our communities to come along with us? You know, this isn't just about saying, you know, we're going to do this. You need to come with us. You know, the more and more I've thought about prevention, it's about how, we, how are we persuading people to come with us? You know, for men, you know, how are we going to persuade men to, to take on this role as leaders? How are we going to persuade communities to um, follow us and, and work with us and, and take some proactive action? And for me, we need to look at the science of persuasion, and one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest persuaders is um, reciprocity. What's in it for me? You know, so and, and for me, if we get if we get prevention right, we have safe communities. You know, our daughters will, will feel free to to walk out every single night. So we need to make prevention look good, and for me, that's what you're talking about. How do we create that flow where, where, where we all start to feel the same, see the same, and have that common purpose. Because common purpose is another big motivator for, for, for people. Where we're flowing together for the same, you know, the same outcome. And, you know, I think a lot of think people in really prevention important. need to start thinking about Yeah. I think that's a really good point you make there, Graham, because what I've seen in communities and community work is you get sort of a core group of people that sometimes, if I'm being honest with you, are not always the right people to be able to sort of forge yeah. those communities and like take them forward. And then you get all the, um, you get all the sort of backbiting and all the egos sort of, you know, getting sort of entrenched in some of these sort of 
community battles in terms of and one of the things I talk a lot about is you know leaving those egos at the door and everybody just coming together for the right reasons and you know we've all got different opinions we've all got different ideas but if we have overall a common goal then we may be able to bring new blood into those communities to help lead those communities sort of forward like you've just said because at the moment you know I think it's there's 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 quite a lot of um um empathy uh, 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 that's probably not the right word a lot of reluctance for people to come on board within within communities and 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 put their head above the parapet and we need to try and increase that i think that participation i think and even more so now with the cost of living crisis and you know i really fear that we are going to see levels of violence and antisocial behavior increase because of what we're all what people are we're not all we're all in the same storm but in different boats but like covid um and i think we need to you know expect people to keep their heads down because they're just surviving um and it's not like they it's not like they they don't want to they just can't so we need to how we help them overcome that is help them find their friends and communities that common purpose and and also give them the tools give them the tools and as you say it doesn't have to be small big things you know positive evolution for me starts with small acts it's like if your friends uh discloses a victim of you know as, as a victim of domestic abuse or your neighbor you know says something to you or you suspect something simply saying to a, a, a friend a neighbor hey i think something's happening to you that isn't your fault that can that can that's a small thing but it can be a massive help for that person who's going through a horrific part sort of time in their life yeah i, I think that's absolutely right you know it's about you know, reaching out and and just in that that the initial engagement can make a massive massive difference. I think one of the things I wanted to pick up on as well, Graham, sort of coming on, you know, moving on from this subject is how important you think good quality neighbour policing is to help sort of pull all this together. And I think that's something for me that's been severely yeah. cut over the years, certainly since two thousand and ten, when I look at when I had sort of nine PCs and a really healthy number of officers where we could go out into a community and make a massive difference. And I just wondered what your views were on that really in terms of, you know, do, do you see that as, you know, in the future something that we need to put right and something that will help us forge these kind of initiatives and ideas that we can take forward? Yeah, I think we've said early on in this in this conversation is that we can't police a way out of this, right? The issues we see in society, we can't police a way out. But we need policing. We need, we need that 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 we, we need policing to exist in, in 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 society. And the best job I had in policing was community policing. I loved my time as a beat bobby back in the nineteen eighties and nineties, walking the beat, speaking to people, having a cup of tea, you know, going out there and speaking. But we, I think, we need to, as as a, as a police, we, as a police organisation, it's about how do we bring other stakeholders into this and ensure that we're all doing our little bits and pieces for this. We're all doing our bits. And that's where the shared agenda comes in. You know, I think that's a useful tool that I have taken into retirement now is, you know, how are we sharing, you know, the, you know, how are we sharing the, the issues we see in society? Because policing, we, we tend to deal with everything. We tend to say, we're going to do this, we'll do that and we'll do this. And for me, you know, the, you know, we, we have a role, there's no doubt about it, but how, how are we working with, with, with young people? How are we working in schools? How are we working um with all the other stakeholders out there so there's i think community policing neighborhood policing is key and is critical but again you need to we need to look look wider and start thinking about what's the role of 
other organizations but importantly what's the role of community what's the role of wider society and you know there's a, a program on just now can the police keep us safe and you know there's a, there's a program coming out quite soon the episode I'm, I'm speaking on on the episode and i'm talking about this this type of conversation the role of society in addressing issues way before it becomes the policing issue yeah the way i kind of look at it is and i think um this is certainly what i experienced when i was a police officer was i totally agree with you my role was really about not taking all the responsibility but being the influential say sergeant that pulled it all together and like you've just said pulling the right people to be able to then form that model and to move forward as a collective partnership and i think one thing i think the police are quite good at although i think we have had our reputation hit a bit over you know everard etc is we are quite influential and we can pull the right people together and i think that's where a good quality neighbourhood sergeant and a good quality neighbourhood team can use that influence yeah. to pull the right people in and to, again, leave those egos at the door and forge some really good quality relationships. I also think this, this, we need to have some honest conversations with communities because when you look at you know, policing priorities and community priorities, they're often different. <laughs> you know, in some communities, you know, dog filing will be the main, you know, the big focus, whereas we know domestic abuse should be something so i think there's a there's, there's there's a role for for community teams to really communicate some of the stuff we've talked about today about early years trauma or about the, the impact of domestic abuse so because we you know so we start to inform or give community a, a sort of different lens a more trauma-informed lens so to speak so they start to come with us they don't just you know, you know it's important that communities believe in what we're doing out there right and so we're going out there and doing work around domestic abuse they know why we're doing that they know exactly why we're doing it we'll still do our best to deal with um dog fouling but then maybe that's something communities can be dealing with as well and we see that a lot in communities talking about how it's not acceptable so we need to see more of that community facebook sites etc but i think there's a role for sergeants and any community cop to really have that courageous conversation with a community and saying hey we get that but hey do you realise other things that's going on that we know that are impacting on your safety, impacting on the money we pay in tax every year? These are things we we, we, we need to think about as well. So I think that there's, there's some courageous conversations we need to be having in communities, honest ones. I really like that. And I was speaking, I've, I've had a guy on, a good friend of mine, Carl Chin, who's a historian, you may have heard of him. He does a lot of work around Peaky Blinders. But he said to me a long right. time ago that, Sometimes what we don't do is when we when we empower try and empower communities, we get funding and then we bring outsiders in to deliver it. And really there's no real understanding of that particular community. And I think what we've got to do is, you know, empower these communities from within, not yeah. bring people. Yeah. I, I get that there are skills out there that, you know, like bringing yeah. someone in like you or me that could help. But I do think the core of it has got to be within those communities because they're all unique. And sometimes there's there's yeah. that lack of understanding. Yeah, no, I, a lot of I you know I've done a lot of work as I say doing community bystander trainings, but I've also suggested and we've done three so far where I've trained a team of people within communities to go into their own communities to do this work, because you're right, Brilliant. you know you know I one I'd like to retire again eventually and just chill out, <laughs> but I think but I think there's all but not for a while because I really believe in what I'm doing. But there's also that relevance when they, when they, you know, because we need to 
help communities see themselves in this work and that can be done better by somebody who's from Devon and Cornwall. It's like when I work in schools, I, I really advocate peer, peer, peer mentoring as an approach for tackling violence. You know, why, why do we always need to have cops going in or third party organizations going in to lecture young people about, about knife crime or whatever? I, I really support the use of peers, you know, the older pupils in the school going in to talk about domestic abuse, talking about knife and knife crime. And we've done that in Scotland and I'm doing it with some of the VRUs in England and Wales, we, the Mentors and Violence Prevention Programme, where we train high school mentors year 10, 11, and they work um, seven, year seven, year eight, even in primary transitions, because these young people have walked the walk. They've, they've, they've experienced lots of the challenges that, that young people face in schools. Um, and with the right support and the right guidance, they, they they do a great job. They do a better job than a lot of adults out there, as far as I'm concerned. And we we have this lived experience. tendency, for example, they they've got lived experience, and we we've, we've got this tendency that we need to go into schools and create experts. Uh, and we don't. We need to create conversations. So we don't need to, you know, raise young people's knowledge to an expert level on say domestic abuse or harassment or knife knife carrying. We just need to get them talking. You know, 99% of young people in England and Wales do not carry knives. We know that. There's research being done. So why do we go and lecture young people about the dangers of knife carrying? You know, for me, it's about helping your friend. You know, and knife carrying often starts with bullying. And that's why, you know, there's the big focus in, in England and Wales, especially, is knife crime. You know, England doesn't have a knife crime problem. You have a violence problem. And the knife is the tool. And I understand we need to focus on knives. Totally get that. But if all we're doing is focusing on the knife, we're not focusing on the relationships. We're not focusing on the the the, the notions of masculinity. What you know that leads to young men carrying knives or using knives, and we then forget. We then it's like serious violence is the big phrase in England and Wales just now. That 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 is useful in some respects, but if all we're doing is looking at serious violence, then what about bullying? What about name calling? What about harassment? What about controlling behaviour? Because that's often where other forms of violence start. You know, violence and abuse will evolve and continue until we have interruption. So if we don't address name calling, could that lead to knife carrying? We had a, a, a murder in Scotland many years ago of a young boy, Bailey Gwynn, 15 years old, and um, he was stabbed in the corridor of his school. That started with name calling. That started with people falling out. That started with young people not feeling able to go and speak to a teacher for fear of being called a grass. So we need to have important conversations in our schools to help young people do what is right for their friend. You know, if you can't stop your friend carrying a knife to school because they're being bullied, speak to a teacher, do something about it because the outcomes, you, you could have to live with that for, for the rest of your life and think, what, what, what could you have done? So for me, I think going into schools is important, but it doesn't always have to be the expert professional. Young people... I've worked with thousands of young people in this country, in the United States, who are leaders today, not just for tomorrow. Yeah, I, I, I really do believe in that. And the peer mentoring thing you've just mentioned is is music to my ears because I always said that, you know, when I was in the police, that I, I always felt that kids didn't really take much notice of the cop going in and telling them and, you know, sort of raising that awareness. I always kind of have been a big believer in that lived experience you know, and bringing people in. And, you know, sometimes I think this kind of, you know, just going in and educating them around knives sometimes encourages kids to actually carry knives and we're actually being counterproductive yeah. in the message we're trying to get across to them. 
So that, I do think that that method is good. Yeah, and that's that's rooted in psychology. You know, there's there's a psychologist <coughs> Robert Cialdini in America. He, co- he coined the phrase "the big mistake," and the big mistake is in our efforts to solve a problem, we make it worse. And that's why knife imagery needs to be needs to go from police Twitter accounts. That's why we shouldn't be showing images of knife in schools. And any teachers who are listening to this, if you have a police officer comes to your school with a bag of knives, show them the door. Because you're right, you know, when you start to communicate the bad stuff in society, we've got young people thinking, oh, that's a big knife, I need a bigger one. And that's that's one. the big yeah. mistake. And we need to, and that's why I use that, that statistic, 99% of young people don't carry knives. We need to get that out into every school so the young person sees the good. Balance it with the you know, balance it with the awareness. But if all we're focusing on is fear, um, showing knife imagery, then you know what? I think we we are making the problem worse. And every year, and if you look at the crime surveys that we have in the UK, the fear of crime is completely incongruous to reality. You know, we are living at a time in society where we are probably safer than we've ever been. But when you look at the media and look at the surveys, people are petrified. We can't ignore that. We can't ignore that. But we need to be hearing more about the positive stuff that's going on. Positive news is important. I think it comes back to a point you raised earlier on as well, Graham, is that I don't feel sometimes we give things enough time. You know, it's like there's always seems to be a new project coming through, new kid (laughs) on the block. I always said this, you know, when I was in policing. And I see it still now when I'm working in local authority. I just don't think there's a couple of things for me. I don't think we give things enough time. So we're always chasing that new project because it's for me that sometimes is driven by promotion and egos and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that that's a big one for me. And and again, it comes back to there's so many great minds within this country. If actually we all collaborated and didn't worry about who got yeah. the kudos, we would find yeah. those solutions and we would find the yeah. ideas, but we need to give that time and then we could probably then yeah. influence government to give us the money to actually do it properly. Yeah. Public health requires an evidence-based focus. If it works, you keep doing it. Imagine imagine if we if some backstreet person came through with a, a new COVID vaccine and we hadn't we hadn't tested it. Oh, let's try this. And every, all, all the other stuff was pushed aside. That's what's happening, I think, with in, in, in prevention of violence and crime, is that we we are not fully, you know, looking at the evidence base around programs. We're saying it's working when is it really working? If it's if it's working, we do more. If it's not working, we push it away and do something else and find something that works. And I think, you know, innovation is not just about the brand new idea. Innovation is about applying, like for example, when we brought the Mentors in Violence Prevention Program from the United States, the evidence in the United States said that it was working. So we we basically put a kilt on it and brought it to Scotland. We followed the same procedures that they use, the fidelity of the model, and we got the same results within six months. And we've now scaled it up. And it's still going 12 years later because we really, really pushed it. And I think your innovation isn't just about the new idea. It's about, okay, if that's working in Scotland, why should let's try it in England? So innovation and creativity is about bringing something and applying it to your part of England or Wales. And we're doing that. Some parts of England, Leicestershire, and other parts of the country are doing. Greater Manchester are, are looking at them, are using Mentors and Violence Prevention MVP program because it's it's and they're being creative by applying it in their area. So you know, right? I think 
in policing, <laughs> yeah, egos get in the way, the promotion system, I need evidence. But I think there's a lot of good work out going on out there which has been pushed aside. And also I think some home office funding is very short term. You know, you know, bystander work is, you know, the danger with bystander work is people say, oh, we've ticked that box. What's next? No, the evidence says this will, this will help reduce violence and empower communities. Do more, don't do less, do more. So how do you embed it? How do you make it more sustainable? How do you train your own communities to deliver? That's the creativity for the next step. And we don't see that enough. Yeah. We, short-term funding is a problem, I think, in some parts. I think you're absolutely right. And all the good projects that I've been involved in over the years, they've all been short-term and then they've just come to an end. And yeah. you know that if you had long, long-term long funding, you could make some real differences. And and that's yeah. been really frustrating for me and probably one of the reasons why I did leave the police service early, really, apart from the cuts as well, that I just felt yeah. that I wasn't making that difference anymore because I didn't have the money and the funding to be able to do it. Um, and there wasn't the yeah. appetite to look at things longer term. Um, so I think that is definitely, I think, I think for me, Graham, I think a core group of us need to come together, you know, form some kind of alliance and look at this in a bit more detail and try and push the agenda a bit. I, I, I think there's real value in this. And this is one of the reasons why I do the podcast, but I think there's an, there's another level now that we need to push, push on, you know, get people like you, me and a few others that I'm collaborating with, you know, and, and maybe start really, really doing some work around this and, trying to trying to yeah. you know take it to that new level if if you're interested i, I i'm interested and in, i think that the violence reduction units in england and wales are, are starting to bring that together and the, the home office have given them three years with the funding which is really good um so they, they've got that consistent they've got that long 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 term and there's some and some violence reduction units are really embracing that they're really embracing you know, investing in, in 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 the work for the long term and so, and yeah, so I think there's opportunities to bring people together to to influence thinking. Well, that's really good, um, and I'll I'll definitely you know be back in touch with you about that. Um, just before we come up towards the end, it's amazing how uh, quick an hour and eight minutes goes, Graham. That's how long we've been talking. So it must have been a good interview. Um, just wanted to you know give you the floor really around cultivating minds. Anything else you wanted to discuss or, or just raise? around cultivating minds and other work that you do as part of that that sort of business that yeah. you that you run as well well you know it's like that, that, that sort of cultivating minds it sounds grand it's just me it's just me and, and the, the, the name cultivating minds is just my passion cultivating discussions you know i i've learned yeah. um you know my lens has been um informed by curiosity you know i've I, you know when i joined the violence reduction unit i was told by a, a lady be curious about this stuff and 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 it's what you learn after you think you know all that counts in many ways you know if you think you know if you become quite fixed mindset wrong open your mindset to to to, to new ideas so cultivating minds for me was just a an opportunity for me to create important conversations all the stuff we've talked about today so taking it into workplace you know rather than you know telling people in workplaces what not to do how about telling them what they could do to stop things? How do you how do you create that culture of safety and support? Working in sports teams is, is important as well. But all of these places, I'm getting access to people who would never normally come to that domestic abuse conference or that, you know, mental health conference. Because, you know, and it's important that we get this stuff right into all these different communities. You know, people are living in London, Glasgow, little villages here, there and everywhere. And... I think people want to be doing more 
so that's 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 the work that I do, um, and and always looking for opportunities to create that conversation to bring some of this stuff as well into the you know talking about trauma and the importance of domestic abuse prevention because I think society often you know you know becomes that you know becomes reliant on policing and wants the police to do more of this and more of that and or you know that isn't that that domestic abuse is not important it is important so a lot of the work that I do is about communicating why that's important I I, I want to make prevention look good because we buy into and the psychology says we buy into things that look good right and we also buy th into things that will give us benefits you know everybody listening to this today if you pay tax you're paying about a thousand pounds probably more than now in tax towards violence prevention <laughs> you know imagine if we could reduce homicides in england and wales you know how much more money could we be using in the nhs you know we, we did some work in scotland every homicide in scotland was costing about 1.3 million pounds yeah. you know and we 2004 we had 165 homicides in the last the last count for the last 10 years it's been around about 60 homicides so think of the money that we've saved and you know think about how we could be directing that into other other you know other other areas to help um, individuals so yeah making making this stuff you know making prevention look good what's in it for me and that that's what cultivate means minds is about it's about supporting organizations communities to build safe supportive communities where we look out for each other, where we get on with each other, where we where we just see less abuse and violence because violence is very personal to people listening to this. It's personal to me. Um, and I think we need to th think about our role in preventing it. Yeah. I think as well, the more this gets traction, and I hate to bring politics into it, but I know the way government works is that the more attractive this becomes from a government perspective the more money that will be pumped into it so you know i hate yeah. to bring that into it but i think it's the truth you know if the government see that you know people are taking more notice of this and you know that it potentially could be a vote winner then they will put more money into it and i think that's you know that's something that will help to bring this agenda and bring this you know more effective within yeah. our communities so that can only be a good thing from my point of view um, i would agree I would we're coming agree. up to the end of the interview now sorry graham sorry to interrupt you carry on mate no that's fine i agree with you totally yeah i um we're coming to the end now and and i always ask a question at the end is is there anything that you wanted to cover that we haven't covered or i haven't asked you this is your opportunity I think, you know, I think for me, you know, one thing I'm really passionate about working with young men is, and this, you could put this, apply this to young people in general, but young men in particular, and this would be relevant to people who work in sports coaching, work in schools, anybody who's working with young people. The earlier we develop character in young people, um, I think that will sort of equip them through it all their lives. So what I mean by that is developing their brand, their sense of personal brand. What do they believe in? You know, right at the start of this interview, you talked about, you know, bringing your whole self to work and using that to, to, to do different tasks and, and whatnot. And I think we don't, we're good, at, we're good at this country about imposing values, British values or whatever. We impose them on young people. We need to help young people develop their own brand. You know, in many ways, your greatest superpower is your presence. And I think the earlier we develop that sense of presence, that brand, that character, character matters. You know, we see it in 
politics where character has gone out the window over the last the last few weeks and months. And I think with good values, good character, we can help young people deal with the challenges that they're, they're facing, you know, now and in the future. So my advice, yeah, you know, I'm a real believer in developing in character development, but working with young, working with young people, not imposing our values. I think we need to allow young people to be. The, I said a little while ago, help young people be the leaders today, not just tomorrow. You know, there's so much potential out there in our young people, and we need to move from the the deficit focus to the 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 the, the, the sort of more asset, the more strength based approaches that you we've we've discussed today, seeing the good in people. Um, and also, let's hear more positive news. <laughs> I think we need to, we need to, yeah, we can't get away from the negative news, totally accept that, but let's hear more about the good work that people are doing, the good things that young people are doing, the good thing that our employees are doing in our communities, because that that then creates the cult that people want to follow. So, yeah, I think that's, thanks, yeah. thanks for that opportunity, but these are key points for me. Right people in, not off. Yeah. Yeah, important. I think that's a real big one for me. You know, writing people in. I see a lot of good yeah. young people. You know, yeah. I think there's a lot, like you're saying, I love that brand thing, you know, pushing money to one side. It's not about money for me. It's about it's about having that real good brand and, you know, being unique, you know, not following the crowd, being unique. I think that's yeah. a good thing to have, you know, is to be different and yeah. um, to be yourself, yeah. you know, not live your life for other people. And 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 lastly, <coughs> lastly, be curious, people. Be curious about this stuff. You know, lean into these issues. Learn about domestic abuse. Learn about trauma. Um, really, really become curious about about these issues. And you know, do the knowledge on this stuff. Really, really do the knowledge. And that that's that's allowed me to transform my lens. And I think it's allowed me to be myself. I think I've always been this person. But you know, lean into these issues, um, and be curious about what, what we're talking about today. And lastly, you know, the best ideas, I learned this quote many years ago, the best ideas are the ones that at first scare the hell out of you, right? And that's what we, we've done in Scotland. We've taken chances, we've, 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 we've taken risks. And you know, one thing I'd love to see in courts is employment. If you're sentenced for a crime, I sentence you to paid employment. <laughs> How scary would that be for, for people? But you know what? The evidence says that give a person a job, you give them hope, you give them a reason to get up in the morning and you give them that diversion away from other issues that are taking place. And you help dads be dads, mums be mums, families be families. So these are, these are we, need, we need smart ideas out there and, and you know, the evidence is there, tells us what works. Good, safe, stable relationships is what we need. Nothing has ever been achieved, Graham, without a bit of risk. You've got to have risk oh, God, to yeah. be able, you know, anything we achieve in life we've got to take a risk and that sometimes yeah. I think sometimes people aren't prepared to do that um, and that's where we've got to empower them more to take those risks and I think what you just said about employment absolutely bang on I think that's a great option and um, people do want to be good parents they do want to be good people yeah. in society I don't I don't believe for one minute that everybody just wants to be a criminal and wants to create loads of problems no. I think there's a deep-seated yeah. reason and complex reasons why people are why they are and I think we've got a lot of that out today, so I think you you raised some some brilliant points there at the end of the interview. Um, how can people reach out to you, Graham? Um, I suppose my 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 um, I do a lot of work on Twitter, so um, at Graham underscore Golden um, is my um, Twitter handle. 
my um, website is just grahamgoulden.com. You'll get an idea of what I do, um, different places I work. There's a blog site there. I, I blog a lot on um, these topics, you know, so there's that. And um, yeah, reach out and we can we connect. Brilliant. Thanks, Graham. And just can't thank you enough for coming on today. I think you've raised some absolutely fantastic points. It's so um, interesting and I think there is real hope, you know, and you know what, if we can save one or two lives with this kind of approach, we've done our job, haven't we? You know, if you think about the amount of people that get affected by just one life that goes wrong, you know, um, I really do believe we are making a difference. And like you say, one person or a couple of people can make that massive difference. Yeah. Great. I think it's been a great opportunity to talk and look forward to hearing this and seeing, seeing people's reactions to it. Thanks, Graham. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Community Safety Podcast. We really do appreciate your support. Please spread our message. Share this podcast with your friends, family and colleagues. Um, Leave a five-star review if you can. And we will catch you on the next episode. That was a fantastic interview with Graham Gordon. We are so much on the same page when it comes to early intervention the reasons why people do become violent on our streets and how we've got to start having those honest conversations with our peers if we are to make communities stronger and just you know obliterate violence big tall order but you've got to have the optimism thank you again for listening to the community safety podcast we really do appreciate you um, getting involved in this really important piece of work please tell your friends please tell your colleagues and if you can leave a five-star review that would be really appreciated and we'll catch you on the next episode alongside support from st ives chambers rhe global and barden co-recruitment in partnership with district four you have been listening to the community safety podcast with jim nixon